For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, will be more, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the, the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's been a lot going on this week. Big things going on, right? What's been the big thing? Tell me. What? Wedding? No, it's Yanny or Laurel. That's been the big thing this week, right? So Yanny or Laurel. I mean, it's blown up the internet. It's just been everywhere. The wedding comes second place. I mean, that's only 1.9 billion people. Yanny and Laurel broke the internet. Uh, you know, it, it's been crazy, and how people have this, you know, argued over it, and work, uh, the workspaces stopped as people kept listening to, is it Yanny or Laurel? How many of y'all don't know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. Okay, y- y'all are, y'all, that's sad. That is really sad, okay? Um, you need to go, like, Google it. Not now, but Google it later, and, uh, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And, and how you hear Laurel, I don't get it, but uh, yeah, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. And, and it's, it fascinated that this little girl puts this out on Twitter, it goes viral. Our country just starts shutting down at the workplace, and there's videos all everywhere of people, just the offices start arguing over Yanny or Laurel, Yanny or Laurel over this audio clip, and it's, it's really strange. It's kind of you know, you know, weird how you listen to it 30 times. I listened to it dozens of times. That's why my sermon is really not going to be that good this week because I couldn't, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden, if you play with it, like, you know, it no longer sounds like Yanny. It sounds like I mean, it's really, it's really mysterious how this works. 
You know, there's something about mystery that, we, that fascinates us as human beings. We like mysteries. It captivates us, doesn't it? This is true in the physical world. It's true in the spiritual realm also. Uh, I've noticed that in the spiritual realm, uh, one thing that will always become a, a topic of interest to people, regardless of their background, their faith, whether they're Christians or not, uh, for example, is the mystery of what the Bible teaches about the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. Uh, uh, you know, there's some concepts in the Bible that have now become so well known and they've become part of our pop culture uh, and movies have made their plot lines around things like the Antichrist and the Armageddon and the rapture. And, and these are things that are now just part of the culture of our country because of the mystery of the end of the world as we know it. To slip in an REM reference there into my sermon, those of you who are old enough to know who REM is, right? Um, we, we, uh, let's just take a, a quick poll. If you are at least mildly curious about the end of the world and the second coming of God and what's going to happen and all this kind of, just raise your hand. If you're just at least mildly curious, okay, exactly. And those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're just not listening to me already. You've already checked out. Um, right. And, you know, and the nice thing is this, you're not alone. You're not alone in your curiosity. This parable that we have here this morning, um, it is an answer to people who were curious about the end of the world. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 24, verse 1, you have the apostles walking with Jesus in Jerusalem, and they are touring the temple grounds, uh, the, the temple there in Jerusalem. And they're, they're, they're showing off its beauty to Jesus. And as they're doing this, at some point, Jesus stops and says, I'm going to tell you something. This temple is going to be so destroyed that every stone will be removed from one on top of another. And, and this so shocks and flabbergasts the apostles that later in verse 3, we read this. And Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. His disciples come to him privately, not when everybody else is around. And they say, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? You see, in their mind, the destruction of the temple was so catastrophic, it must mean that the end of the world is now here. That, that this signifies the return of Jesus, your, your second coming. Um, and so the rest of chapter 24, Jesus actually begins to answer their question. Um, but they don't realize is he's answering a couple of different questions. Uh, he's answering the question of the destruction of the temple. And he makes it very clear that the destruction of the temple is going to happen before that generation passes away, which happens in 70 AD. But he's also answering the question of his return and the end of the world. And so when you get around verses 29 and, and onward in chapter, 20, in chapter 24, he gives these incredible statements about his return, how the angels will blow this loud trumpet and it'll be after a time of tribulation and he will come suddenly and he'll send out his angels to gather his elect from the four corners of the world and he'll separate the elect from the non-elect. And then he begins a series of, of analogies and parables, all of which have a similar theme. And that is be on the lookout, be ready, because it's going to happen when you least expect it like a thief in the night who comes when you don't expect it, that's when it's going to occur. It'll happen, you know, you just, like in a normal time of life, when you're having a wedding, boom, I will come back. 
And so he ends chapter 24 with this, this, this very strong exhortation. You see it twice in a row. He says, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You see, this is important for us to understand. If we're gonna get this context, we gotta go into this context, if we're gonna understand chapter 25 and these parables that Jesus is giving because what he is doing is he is a touching on this idea of being ready. These parables are given to back up this exhortation to be ready. At the beginning of chapter 25, he opens with a, a parable of 10 virgins, 10 young women. And like even young women today, they loved weddings, right? And they were looking forward to going to a wedding. These 10 women, they all looked the same. They, they were all dressed to the nines. They're ready for the wedding celebration. They've got their lamps uh, ready to, to light up the path, to usher in the, the bridal party. They're, they're looking forward to the wedding supper of the bridegroom, but the bridegroom is delayed. And of course, who's the bridegroom in the parable? It's Jesus. And these 10 virgins, they're waiting, and he's not coming. And after a while, they get sleepy, and they start sleeping. And then all of a sudden, he's there. And unfortunately, five of the virgins, at the very last minute, it's revealed they're not ready. They had run out of oil. They can't, their admission ticket, the, the right to come into the wedding supper is not there. And so at the last minute, when they realize they're not ready, they start rushing around to get ready, but it's too late. The doors are closed and five of them are able to come in and five of them are not able to come in. They thought they were ready, but they weren't ready. You see, it's a warning that, it's a sober warning. It's a warning that we have heard from Jesus numerous times. In his ministry. We've, we've parked most of this ministry year in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and near the Sermon on the Mount, we heard this same warning. We heard it more than once, but explicitly in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. He says, on that last day, many will say, but Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We did all these good works. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you wicked, into everlasting darkness. This theme comes up over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry. And these ten par these, these, this parable of the ten virgins, it's a, it's a chilling parable because what it's telling us is that you could live your whole life in church as a member of the visible church, but you're not a member of the invisible church, the membership that actually counts at the return of Jesus Christ. You can look the part, but not be ready. And so it's only natural when Jesus spends so much teaching capital on making this type of sober warning to be ready, be ready, be ready to ask a very sensible question. It's irresponsible to not ask this question. How can I know that I am ready? 
I mean, only a moron would not ask this question. I don't know if that's a politically correct term anymore. Sorry if I offended someone. Um, to not ask, am I ready? How can I be sure that I'm ready? How can I be sure that I'm one of the five that come in? How can I be sure, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that I am wheat and not a weed? Because that parable touched on the same idea. How can I be sure that I'm not left out of the wedding supper of the Lamb? This, and in answer to that, we come to this parable of the talents. The parable of talents, and the next parable, the ter- parable of the, the goat and the sheep, is all about helping us answer the question, am I ready? Jesus gives us these parables so that we can use them to know, am I ready? But before we use it, we got to understand it, right? We've got to understand what Jesus is saying. So let's go look at the first part of this parable, right? The master, he leaves on a trip. His servants are called to him. They are entrusted with his property. And the property um, is given out to the, to the servants based upon their ability, his assessment of their ability. He gives the one five talents, another two talents, another one talent. Understand that a talent is a weight of measurement in the ancient world. It represents 70, roughly 70 pounds of a substance. And in this case, you know in this parable that it's money because he talks about it gaining interest later. So it's 70 pounds of gold or silver or the coinage of that day. To put it in in our terminology, one talent would have equaled around 20 years of your salary, okay? So we're talking, uh, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars is being entrusted just with one talent, five talents, even more. So we're talking about a lot of resources are being entrusted to these servants. The first guy and the second guy, they're excited. They take these talents. They put them to work for the master. The third guy, what does he do? He takes the talents. He buries them in the ground, and he goes about his business, living his life the way he wants to live it. Now, where are we in the first part of this parable, okay? Because we're supposed to find ourselves in these parables. Where are we in the first part of this parable? Well, we know we're not the master. We're not supposed to see ourselves as the master. Who's the master in this parable, church? Who's the master? Jesus, yes, I, you know, your Sunday school answer, Jesus, you know? Whenever the preacher asks a question, if you say Jesus, you got a 50-50 chance that you're right, okay? Jesus, he's the master. And he's ascended to the heavens as we, as we talked last week, as we celebrated his ascension. And we are waiting his return. That's what he's referring to. He's preparing and he's talking about the future and what's going to happen. And he's left, but he's going to come back one day. Right? And, he's, and, and we are the servants. And while our master has gone, he's entrusted to us his resources, and we're to faithfully invest it and to manage those resources that he's entrusted to us in a way that pleases him. We are his stewards. An interesting thing, that word steward, which appears in the Bible, comes from the Greek word oikonomia, oikonomia, from which we get the English word economy or economist. 
We are Jesus' economist. We're his financial planners. We're his money managers. We're his stewards. We're his investors. In this parable, what he's entrusted to us, the talent, the resource that he's entrusted to us is clearly talking about finances, money. But there's more than that that he's entrusted to us according to the Bible. Money's not even necessarily the most important thing that he's entrusted to us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel of God. And that literally, he says, of the mysteries of God. Because we all like mysteries, right? But the gospel is a mystery. And he says in verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So one of the most important things, maybe I would contend the most important thing that Jesus has entrusted to us is the gospel itself and the communication and the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ to the Great Commission. And so we back up and say, am I a steward? Am I investing in the kingdom, managing the communication of the gospel in my life? See, it's more than money. Um, it's spiritual gifts, according to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we are all given gifts, and will we invest those gifts, those talents and abilities to build up the kingdom of God and to glorify Christ, to manage it and to use it so that the kingdom is grown I could go on and on and give examples. If you want a verse that just covers it all, rather than give you verse after verse, we don't have time for that this morning because I have too much to say. So I'm just going to give you one verse. Psalm 24, 1, it covers it all, right? Read it with me. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Did you catch that? It covers everything, doesn't it? In other words, your children are God's children entrusted to you. This church is not my church. It's God's church. It's Christ's church that's been entrusted to me and to you to steward. This city is God's city entrusted to us to invest in and to manage for his glory. This world, Genesis chapter 2, tells us that creation itself, it's God's, this world is God's world, and he says, I've put you in charge, I've made man just a little bit lower than the angels to have dominion over the earth, to manage it, to steward it. That's why Christians ought to care about the environment and what happens in the environment. And we ought to be at the forefront of protecting our world. It's a stewardship call. Everything, folks, our children, this church, the gospel, our time, every dime, every dollar that comes through our fingers, it's not my money, it's the Lord's money. 
And I'm called to manage it. You're called to manage it. Our houses, our cars, our clothes, everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Got it? Everything. Nothing belongs to us. It all belongs to him. He just loans it to us for a little while to manage for his glory. Uh, Dave Ramsey gives us a great definition for stewardship. I love it because it's short and sweet to the point and it captures it. He says, stewardship is managing God's blessings, God's way for God's glory. Awesome. Read it with me out loud. Ready? Stewardship is managing God's blessings, God's way for God's glory. All right. How about the second part of the parable? Verse, uh, verse 19 says, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. This is where you cue the ominous music, right? The master returns. The ones given five and two talents, man, when he returns, they are excited. They are filled with joy. They have been investing and they have been working. And what has happened? They have doubled what they were given. And they are filled with excitement. And, and when they bring it to the master, they both hear the exact same praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But then comes the last servant. And listen to what he says. What do you, what do you hear in his voice? When I read these words, I want you to take, you're going to take like 20 seconds. And I want you to turn to the person next to you after I read it. And I want you to tell them, here's what I hear. Here's the emotions. Here's the attitude that I'm hearing in this guy's words. Okay, so I'm asking you to do some interpretation this morning. Listen to what he says. Master. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. All right, 20 seconds. Turn to somebody next to you and tell them what you heard. What are you hearing in that guy's voice? All right, so I'm gonna pick on this section right here. Somebody out in this section right here, tell me, what'd you hear? Blame, blame shifting, right? He blame shifts, exactly. How about over here, somebody's, what? Self-centeredness, yes. Did anybody over here hear anything? What, greed? Fear, good. How about over here? Sarcasm, yeah, that's good. All right, raise seating. Are you awake back there? Anybody back there? What'd you hear? Bitterness. Yeah, resentment. And, and just, he's resentful, he's bitter, he's afraid, he's blame shifting, right? He's self-rationalizing his, his, uh, his activities. He's self-justifying. Uh, he, he's a little bit like a petulant child. Those of us who've raised children, when you catch them doing something that they know they shouldn't have done and you confront them with it, you know, at first they, they bow up and they, 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 they stick that lower lip out. You can kind of see that activity here in this guy. But it's not cute, is it? 
It's cute in a three-year-old, maybe, but it's not cute in a 30-year-old. And the master's response is chilling. He rebukes him, and then he says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, a few moments ago, we asked, where are we in the first part of the parable? And we established that Jesus is the master. We're the servants that are supposed to be faithful, obedient stewards. But now we have got to ask, where are we in the second part of the parable? For when we ask that question on the second part of the parable, we move from understanding the parable to using the parable the way Jesus intends for us to use it. To help answer the question, am I ready? You you see, these, these three parables in chapter 25, there's a lot of similarity here. They have things in common, right? I mean, you have the 10, you have the characters who they all appear very similar at first glance, but they have very different destinies. You have 10 young women, 10 virgins, dressed to the nines, with their lamps, all lit, looking like they're ready, but at crunch time, when the bridegroom returns, five of them are brought into the celebration, and it's revealed that five were not actually ready. In the next parable, the sheep and the goats, you know, sheep and goats at a distance, when you look at them, they're four legs, fur, they're all eating grass, they look very similar, right? But the shepherd, when he brings them together, he's able to distinguish and he divides them right from left. And in that parable, what do you find? Those who show mercy, who are a neighbor, who are that good Samaritan like we looked at last week. You see that parable and the good Samaritan that we looked at last week go hand in hand. And those who were the good Samaritan who got off the donkey and they get bloody and they get messy and they're a neighbor to the person who's in need and they show mercy to that person. They're sheep who are welcomed into everlasting life. But the other, the goats, are like the Levite, the priest, who walk by that man in the road. And what is their destiny? He says, cast them into utter darkness, into hell itself. These two parables are important. Here you have three servants. They all look similar. They all have talents. They may have all had the same education. One thing after another, three men, put them up on a stage, look very similar Two of them are ready, one of them is not. Two of them enter into their master's joy, one of them does not. Do you see what Jesus is getting at here? Who is he talking to? Who is his audience? His audience is not a group of people who are not following him and claiming to be disciples. His audience are men and women who claim to be followers and disciples and believers in him. And he's giving this parable, these parables, these warnings to these people. 
We have to find ourselves in these parables. You see, we have to use them properly. They're not meant to be used as, you know, cross-examining binoculars where I look at John Prentice and I say, hmm, how's he doing in his stewardship? Where I look at you, how are you doing? No, it's meant to be a mirror that I hold up in front of myself and say, am I ready? From the perspective of stewardship, am I ready? From the perspective of mercy, in the next parable, am I ready? Am I a sheep or goat? Am I a faithful servant or an unfaithful servant? So I want to give you some gospel applications this morning that help us here so we can use this parable. And so I'm going to do something very, very, you'll hardly ever hear me say this, okay? If you don't have the YouVersion app, the, what you're going to see on the screen is in the YouVersion app. So those of you who don't use that have that, I want you to take your phone out, and I want you to take pictures of the screen. You know, you'll hardly ever hear me say that in the middle of a sermon, take your phone out, right? Because you're never going to be able to write all this down. Because I'm going to give you four applications, and I'm going to give you questions underneath these applications that I want you to take home, church, and I want you to spend time with your Lord. I want you to spend time with the Holy Spirit and say, would you open my eyes and would you show me, am I a faithful servant or am I a fraud? Which am I? Okay. So these four applications and just, you know, cards on the table. Uh, the first one, I bounced around in my sermon prep. I, at first, I put it at the end. I put it in the middle I, because it's the hardest one. It's the, it's the nasty one. It's the one that is going to probably, it might make somebody mad, you know, and I'm enough of a softie that I don't like making people mad. And then I finally just said, get it over with, and let's put it at the beginning. So the first one's hard, but it's an important application from this parable. And it's this, false servants resent stewardship, and they create self-vindicating excuses for opting out. You see this in a parable in living color, right? False servants resent stewardship and create self-vindicating excuses for opting out. And so we need to ask ourselves, so to help understand this, do I make excuses and rationalize away my opting out of key areas of stewardship? I mean, we're given, we're given our children, we're given this church, we're given our time, our talents, our treasures. Do I say to myself, you know, I, 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 do, I do X, so therefore I don't have to do Y. You know, I serve in my church, therefore I, you know, I don't financially give. I, I stroke a check, I give, and I said, don't, you know, don't ask me to volunteer and serve on a ministry team. Or, or I give so, you know, other people can spread the gospel around the world and build churches and invest in the kingdom. You know what's kind of funny? The absurdity of thinking that it's, you know, I'm being a faithful steward if I, you know, I have these, you know, okay, yeah, I'm a steward here, but I'm over here, all right, well, that's okay. The absurdity of this thinking is really obvious. <clears throat> 
Because I have faced this through the years in every church I've been in, this self-rationalizing. And when you call people on it, and, and no matter how gentle you are, the, the anger wells up, the resentment wells up, and, and it gets ugly really fast. Since I've been pastor here, I've had more than one family leave the church over this issue. I've had officers resign over this issue, right? It's an ugly, ugly thing. But here's what I've never heard. I've never heard anybody look at me and say, Jerry, listen, I serve in the church. Somebody else needs to raise my children. <laughs> right? Never heard that one. Why? Because we understand that it's not optional. God gives me these children to raise. It's a matter of stewardship. This is an honor for God. I have got to raise these children. But folks, that same honor that God has given us with our children is the same honor in every other category. So just as I can't opt out on raising my children, although there's been a couple of times I wanted to. No, not really, boys. I love you. Just as we can't opt out there, we can't opt out on spreading the gospel around the world. We can't opt out in investing in the kingdom. We can't opt out in finding our spiritual gifts and using them to build up the church. And any excuses we give are exactly that. They are excuses. It's the rationalization of the false servant. Second application. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. So am I, am I living as a steward or as an owner? Do I, do, I see it as, do I see them as my children or God's children? Do I see it as my church or God's church? Do as I see it as my time? This is my time. Or is it God's time? My money or God's money, right? Hey, here's an important question. Here's a good one. I want you to think about this one. Seriously think about this one. If someone were to pick up my checkbook and my calendar, my checkbook and my calendar, those two are big ones for most of us. Would they see that investing in the kingdom of God is extremely important to me? Could somebody pick up my checkbook? Could somebody pick up my calendar and say, being involved in the kingdom of God is definitely a part of this guy's life. It's important to him. Is it a first priority or is it a leftover? Everything belongs to God. Third application. How we manage is more important than how much we manage. How we manage is more important than how much we manage. So am I content with what God has given me, or am I constantly thinking I need more? Um, do I take opportunities to become a better steward? When, when I'm presented with opportunities to learn how to, to share my faith do I, do I take it? When, I take, when I'm given opportunities to learn how to be a better parent, do I take it? When I'm given opportunities to learn how to handle money more biblically and wisely so that uh, I'm obeying Scripture, do I take it? Do I take opportunities to become a better steward? Am I making myself accountable to others so that I can be the best dad, the best mom, the best husband, the best wife because my marriage is one of those blessings that God has given me that I'm to invest in in a way that honors Him? Am I accountable to others in this area? 
How we manage is more important than how much we manage. And isn't that a blessing? Because the great thing about this parable is, is that God gave one servant much more Five times more, you know, whatever, twice as much. And yet the guy with five and the guy with two received the same honor from their master. That's the great thing about it. And so we, and by the way, people, we can never sit in the seat of the judge because we don't know how much God has invested in someone. They may have only been given very, very little. And yet with that little, they have far surpassed me with what I've been given. And what matters is what do we do with what we've been given? It's not how much, it's how we manage it. And then one final application is that true servants find joy and are spiritually energized by effective stewardship. When the master came, those first two guys were ecstatic. They weren't ashamed. They were eager to come back to see the master. They found joy in investing what the master had given them. It energized them, gave them a reason to get out of bed, to live life. Hey, how are you? Are you serving and building up other people? This next one's kind of a, a double whammy here. Do you have... Do you have do you struggle saying yes to too many kingdom opportunities? You know what I've found? People who are excited about stewardship, who are involved in the kingdom, sometimes they go too far. Sometimes they get involved in too much. One of the things about being a good steward is learning how to say no sometimes. To say yes to the best things and say no to good things. And, and that's part of the learning process of stewardship. And you'll make mistakes. Sometimes you'll overextend yourself. Sometimes you'll say yes to getting involved in a ministry. And then when you get into it, you'll realize, oh man, I can't wait till this ends because I overcommitted myself. I wasn't a good steward of my time. But you know why you did it? Because you love what God is doing and you want to be a part of it. Awesome motivation, poor execution right? And that's just how, that's part of the maturing process. But praise the Lord that the motivation is right, and the, the Lord will take care of the execution. That's how he grows us up. And what you'll find is you'll get more comfortable with saying no because you'll realize how you can play a part by praying for that opportunity. And it'll become, the things you say no to become more a part of your prayer life, because you realize I can be involved in it that way, and that is such a strong, effective way to invest in the kingdom and what God is doing in that part of the kingdom through prayer. Folks, we have to understand the purpose of this parable and grasp the gravity of it so we can use it properly. I was at lunch this week with a couple of, uh, with several men, uh, several of them were deacons. And, and we were talking about our church, and we were talking about this area of stewardship in, in critical areas. Evangelism. And to speak plainly, let's have a family talk for a minute. The fact that we're not seeing people come to know Jesus Christ 
like we believe we should in our church. We see a few here and there, and praise the Lord for that. And I do am thankful for that. But we should see so much more in our lives as individual Christians and through the ministries of our church. And in the areas of service, the the old principle that 20% of the people do 80% of the work, it's true. Or that 30% of our families contribute a little more than 90% of our church budget. It's true. Or that only a fraction, it's in the teens, I think now, help us spread the gospel around the world. And those men looked at me and said, what, what's going on? The needle isn't moving. See, they've been on the front lines. Of these deacons have been on the front lines of this, to hold, some of them for the whole 10 years I've been here, and they see it. The needle is not moving in our church. And I've been preaching on it for 10 years. The first five years out here, I preached on it four weeks in a row every fall. Remember that, some of you? That ran off quite a few people. <laughs> They didn't like hearing about money and stewardship. Do you know what it's begun to feel like, church? As your pastor, you know what it feels like? It's what the last 10 years have felt like. So we were talking to these deacons, we were talking. I said, you know, I've, I've, we've taught, we've brought it into our discipleship, we've journeyed groups, we've, I've laid it out. Even like this morning, taught the principles of what does it mean to be a steward so that we're making sure people are educated and, and get it. And they said, what do we do? What's, what? I said, guys, I've become convinced and really, Over the last few weeks, preaching through these parables, the issue isn't more education. It isn't more discipleship. It isn't more sermons about tithing or more sermons about using your spiritual gifts. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual issue. And it's the most profound spiritual issue, Jesus says. You see, I've preached this parable to you two other times in the last 10 years, and I have to apologize to you because I got it partly right the previous two times. I taught you important principles from the parable, but I missed the most important thing that Jesus was saying in this parable. And the most important thing that he was saying in this parable, is that if you're the false servant, if if you don't find stewardship to be that joy, that, that thing that you willingly embrace, I mean, this is the fruit of being born again. It flows out of you. You, when you're born again, the kingdom of God grows in us and the kingdom of God grows through us. 
And the Holy Spirit matures us, and, and we have to use those spiritual gifts. We, we want to be involved in bringing the gospel to others because the gospel's so important to us. We have to give mercy to others because we've tasted the mercy of God ourselves. We know where we would be if someone, if Jesus hadn't gotten off the donkey as the good Samaritan and cleaned us up and rescued us. That's what it means to be born again. And so I turned to those men, I said, there's only one answer. We have to pray because Jesus gives us two options of what's going on in our church. In the book of Revelation, he says to the church at Ephesus, for example, you've got all your doctrine right, and you're contending for the faith. Good job. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. And I'm going to take away your lampstand. I'm going to take away your church. Unless you repent and come back to your first love. And to the Laodicean church, their lukewarmness. He says, if you, if you don't stop loving the things of this world and repent, I'm going to take away your church. That's our one option. That's one option that Jesus gives us. That we are a church full of Christians, deeply ensnared by this world, and repentance is deeply needed. The only other option Jesus gives us is this parable. And when I consider this and I look across this audience and I see all of you, most of whom I know, don't know you yet, <laughs> don't know you back there, but most of you I know, and I love you deeply. You are precious to me. I mean, you're more precious to me than many of my family members. But what Jesus says in this parable is that if you continue on this path that you have been on, those of you who have rejected this understanding of stewardship and rationalize away the disobedience and the non-participation and everything, what Jesus says is that you are a false servant, and when he returns, you will hear, cast him out in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a matter of building the church budget or planting another church or having enough volunteers for war football. This is so much more important than that. In other words, Jesus says, our embracing of stewardship in this parable, our embracing of showing mercy to those in need, it demonstrates whether or not we are ready for his return, whether we really belong to him or not. Whether we're genuine or we look the part. You see, this is the, this is the fruit of being raised in a culture that is Christian. We have the luxury, many of us, of being cultural Christians not being raised in countries where being a Christian costs you. It becomes just part of our culture, part of the fabric of our being, or the way that we raise good kids, the way that we have a good life. 
But that's not what it means to be a follower of Christ. There's a willingness there. It's a way of life. It's a joy, not a burden. It's something that we want to be a part of. Because you've received the mercy, the love, and grace of God. And you want to honor your Lord who gave it all. Church, I love you. But I would be holding back the truth of God's word if I didn't say I was deeply concerned. When I stand up here year after year and I say that 40%, 45% of our families or whatever give little to nothing, it's not about the money. It's about your soul. Do you understand that? When I see the families of our church year after year after year, and hear this right, spending more on their vacations than investing in their church. There's nothing wrong with vacation. Don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with a trip of a lifetime. But when it's year after year after year after year, it's not about the budget. I'm afraid for your soul. Please take these questions home. The enemy is going to encourage you to rationalize it away because that's what false servants do. They rationalize it away. Lord Jesus, hard words, hurts my heart to say them. I love these people. But as hard as they are, I would rather they be potentially offended over these words and it cause angst that maybe drives them to the cross. Perhaps to repent of lukewarmness. To repent of love of this world more than love of their, their Lord perhaps to see that they've looked the part. They've, they've said some words, but Jesus, you're not their Lord. The devil believes in you, Jesus, and he trembles. It doesn't make him a follower. Lord Jesus, open our eyes. Do a work of grace in our church for the good of these people who I love. I ask these things. Amen.